Good morning, everybody. Uh, <clears throat> we'd love to have you take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation, uh, which is, uh, if you keep turning to the right, you will eventually find the book of Revelation because it's the last book in the Bible. And this morning, we are continuing our series called Seven Letters, where we're looking at these seven letters to seven churches in uh, what is now Turkey, uh, but um, these letters that actually come from Christ, a revelation from Christ through John to the churches of these particular cities. Um, it is really good to be back, to be here. I was gone for uh, a week. Uh, somebody with really small ears must have used my headset last week. I'm not sure. Like my, my microphone was like twisted and it's like inhumanly small ear. I'm not sure what was up with that. I heard Mark was ripping on me. So um, I had this amazing privilege of getting to be in, uh, in Minnesota, uh, not just because it was Minnesota in the middle of July and I got to miss the 105 degree heat, although that was fantastic. Sorry for those of you who had to endure it. Uh, but I'm a part, and some of you may know this, that uh, Jesse, our youth pastor, and I are both a part of a master's program from Fresno Pacific Biblical Seminary. And we're one year into a three-year degree program. And so the way the program works, most of it's online, but one week out of the year, uh, we travel. And we get to do some really geeky pastor stuff and sit and listen to really smart people talk for hours and hours on end. It was awesome. Um, and so for me, it was kind of a kind of a pilgrimage almost. I got to be at Woodland Hills Community Church in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, the pastor at Woodland Hills, the uh, teaching pastor is Greg Boyd. And Greg uh, is somebody who, we probably all have these people who have like, we've either read their books or we've listened to them teach from a distance and they've shaped us. You have people like that in your life? Like they've influenced you, although you've never really met them. Uh, Greg has been one of those people for me. Uh, I have read his books, although he writes them faster than I can read them. Uh, he just finished a 1,500-page, two-volume work on violence in the Old Testament and how we make sense of that in light of Jesus, so highly recommend it. Um, but uh, if you have questions, I listen to like 20 hours of lecture on it so we can have a conversation if you want to. But uh, getting to be at Woodland Hills, getting to, getting to know Greg a bit, getting to hang out with Jesse, and to see these other church leaders and, and people who are in my cohort from all over North America and Moldova is just phenomenal. So I'm, I'm really grateful uh, to be able to be a part of it. And then ended, um, ended that week uh, in Illinois getting drugged behind a boat around a lake for a couple of days with Carmen's family. So that was fun. If you haven't been drugged behind a boat recently, it is good for your soul. It just sort of like works the kinks out and stuff. So it's fun stuff. Um, but uh, good, to, good to be back and to, to keep tracking with this series. So this morning we're looking at Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. This is a letter to the church in Ephesus. And... Um, Maybe you've noticed by now that Jesus, when he, he sort of gives John these, these revelations, these letters of, of what to say to the churches, Jesus doesn't address Christians in the city. He doesn't address specific individual people. He addresses the church, the church as a whole. Uh, and I think that's really important just to like stop for a minute and then take notice of. Because sometimes here, like in the U.S., we can have this idea that we're kind of individuals. That we have a relationship with God. It's, it's individual. And 
the condition of my heart, the condition of my soul, my relationship with God, it really only affects me. Nobody else. It's sort of just personal. But Jesus doesn't really endorse that way of seeing us. That our personal connection to Christ, it matters. But it also matters to the person sitting in front of you. And it matters to the person sitting behind you. That you are a part of the church. The body of Christ. That we are connected. We're in a network, a spiritual family. And what we do impacts each other. Um, Maybe one way to understand this is, uh, how many of you are excited about the Royals right now? And your Royals fans? I was expecting like a woohoo or something like that, but that's okay. That's cool. Uh, how many of you are excited about the Indians? Cleveland Indians. Oh, so yeah, come on. A couple of people. So the Royals can keep winning as long as they stay in second place. They can win the wild card. That's fine. Just stay a couple games behind my Cleveland Indians. Uh, but I hear some people talk about the Royals or see banners like on uh, Facebook pages and stuff like, We are Royal. Or I hear you talk about like the Royals game last night, like, oh man, we won last night, although you didn't win last night. Um, But like, we won. And there's this like, we, first person language. And it's like, wait a second, like we were not playing, right? I mean, you may have been at the game, but we had no impact on the game whatsoever. And so in what way did we win? Well, we all kind of understand that we're all sort of connected, right? As, as Royals fans, we're connected. That what happens on the field in the game, it impacts us. It might impact our attitude uh, or how we come to worship the next day. Who knows? And what you do as a consumer of Royals merchandise impacts the team, right? It's the, a relationship. And you have some community with other people. When you, you know, pay 40 bucks a ticket and go buy an $8 hot dog, like you have a connection with all these other people who are doing the same thing. You're connected with them. That's a little bit like how we're connected as a church. It gives us just a glimpse that you're not just, it's not just you and Jesus. That faith in Jesus is always personal, but it's never individual. That You're connected, and the person in front of you needs you. Needs you to be alive. Needs you to be sensitive to the Spirit. And you need them as well. And so this is Jesus. He writes to the church in Ephesus. So let's take a look at what he says specifically. He says, Now these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now these are just ways of talking about the church. Jesus, he holds the church in his hand and he walks among the church. And he says to this particular church, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And you have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet, Jesus says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, how do we start to unpack this? It seems like, it seems like the, the crux of this letter is Jesus, he, he has these affirmations, I see your hard work, your perseverance, you've endured lots of things and have not grown weary, like you're sticking it out. 
And yet, I have this against you, Jesus says, you've lost something. You've lost the love you had at first. You have lost that loving feeling, some of you know that. Um, That there's something about the way the church was in the early days. There's something about how it got started that over the course of time is, is missing. It's not there anymore. That vibe, that, that thing, that sensitivity to God's Spirit is, is no longer there. Now, the church in Ephesus got planted in the 50s or 60s. Um, and these are not the 1950s or 60s. These are the 0050s and 60s. Um, and we'll look in just a second about like how that all happened. But it got started in the 50s and 60s, and when John passes this revelation on to the church, it's like the 80s or 90s. So it's like 30 years later, 30, 40 years later. And so Jesus is saying something has happened from the early days until now, and you've lost what you had at first. You've lost this love that animated you at first. Now, one of the cool things is that we actually get to look at how the church started. So if in your Bibles, in Acts chapter 19, we actually have a record of the church in Ephesus at its very beginning. So turn, take a uh, look in your Bible. Turn to, you can keep your finger there in Revelation, but turn to Acts 19. And we'll just get a glimpse of what it was like at the beginning, then maybe we can figure out what was missing. Acts 19. The church was planted in, uh, in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. He actually spent three years there, which was longer than he spent anywhere else on his missionary travels. And... Um, he, uh, he had the help of uh, two people, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. So verse 8, chapter 19 of the book of Acts says this, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So Paul goes into a Jewish place of worship, and he announces, here's his message, There's, the world has a new king. The world has a new king, and it's Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, he, he took the sins of the world. He took all the failures of God's people for all the ages past, took them all in himself. He was crucified, and he rose from, the dead, uh, rose from the dead, and he is ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is the king of heaven and earth. And his kingdom, his reign is coming, and anybody who puts their trust in Jesus can be a part of what God is doing. He talks persuasively about the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. It says, but some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way. By the way, by the way, uh, early Christians were called the way. Uh, They weren't called Christians yet. They were called the way or people of the way. So you have this opposition. So Paul leaves them. He leaves the synagogue, and he took his disciples with him. And he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Middle name, Saurus. Um, he, uh, Tyrannus was a philosopher, and uh, my kids weren't even in here. That was a total dad joke, and they weren't even here to appreciate that. Um, he was a philosopher, and he had this lecture hall. And he would gather people who would come and listen to him teach, but in the afternoon it would get too hot. His people wouldn't come. And so Paul said, hey, I'll take your space in the afternoon. So he would take this lecture hall, and disciples would come and gather, and he would just teach them. People would come to hear Paul teach. And so, um, verse 10, and this went on for two years. And all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and their evil spirits left them. 
Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. Who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So, like, people are recognizing, hey, there's something about this name Jesus that has power, so let's, like, use that to drive these evil spirits out. So they would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. They'd speak to the demons in that way. Verse 14, the seven sons of Sceva. Like, nobody has names like that anymore. This is fantastic. The seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish high priest, they were doing this. One day, an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirits jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This is standard church planting stuff, guys. Um, Verse 17, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear at the name of the Lord Jesus, and it was held in high honor. Many of those who believed came and openly confessed what they had done. So there's this like this oh, I'm an open book, this transparency, this confession that is pouring out of people. Verse 19, a number who had practiced sorcery, like this witchcraft, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That's, that's 50,000 days wages. Um, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Um, and you can go on and read in chapter 19 about a riot that ends up happening in Ephesus and all of that. So, how did the church in Ephesus get going? Well, Apostle Paul went to the Exponential Conference. And he discovered the seven strategic elements of effective church planting. And he implemented those strategies to perfection, and the church was born. Is that how the church in Ephesus gets started? say no. Um, It got started with lots of pamphlets being handed out and taking out billboards. Is that how the church got started? No. How did it get started? It was wild. It's crazy, right? I mean, can you imagine? When's the last time we had a scroll burning party? I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, just this wild stuff. And you, you get the sense, like in Acts 19, that it's just like for a couple of years, it's just like God is just doing stuff. There are people showing up and they just start confessing, like because there, there's something powerful happening. And these Christians are just left to say, like, how do we respond? How do we sort of sort this out? Um, that this is not a carefully structured, carefully organized thing. It's just, man, God is blowing our minds and we have to respond to it. This is how the church in Ephesus gets going. It's amazing. But Jesus, like his critique of them, he says, hey, you're, you're hardworking. Like you're, you're persevering. You're enduring hardships. But you've lost that. Like, that, just that sense of responsiveness, that love, that, like, wide-eyed wonder at what the Spirit is doing, you're losing it. What, what ends up happening sometimes is that, like, when God is moving, and all these great reform movements throughout history, because God's Spirit is always moving, and, and it seems like when our hearts are open, when there are people who are just like fully surrendered, God shows up and does amazing things through them. And it's happened for the last 2,000 years, and even before that. 
And every time it happens, what we tend to want to do is to organize it really thoroughly. Hey, God's doing this thing. People's lives are getting changed. Like, it's, it's, it's unreal. So let's structure it. Like, let's put some boundaries around this thing and, and put some parameters and, and organize this thing. And here's the thing. That's not bad. Like, if a movement is going to be sustained for any amount of time, there have to be some sort of structures. But what we can tend to do is start to put our faith in the structures and the organization, and we can miss the spirit and the move of God. I imagine these Christians in Ephesus, yeah, I don't know, 30 years later, and they get this letter from John, but they're, they're sort of sitting around, and they're ones who were there at the beginning, and they just tell stories about the good old days. Man, do you remember the scroll burning part? Remember the bonfire? It was nuts! Nuts! And they just start telling these stories and reliving those days. And all of a sudden, what has happened is the best things that God has done are in their rearview mirror. Man, I used to be so alive, like so on fire for God. And, and it, was, it was just like this amazing relationship and love relationship with Jesus. And man, those were good days. And, and what can start to happen to us is when we tell our stories, like when somebody says, hey, what's your testimony? Like, what's God doing in your life? We tell the story from 30 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 10 years ago. We tell the story of the day we, we, we got saved, we came to know Jesus. And that's a great story. But what's Jesus doing today? Like, what's the Spirit doing now? And, and, and we can start to think about our life with Jesus as the good old days. And when we do that... And don't hear me, like, it, it's great to remember, it's great to celebrate, it's great to just sort of re- respond to God's faithfulness through the past, but if we aren't living in the present saying, God, what are you doing today? How are you showing up today? What is the fresh wind of the Spirit today? We're going to find ourselves in the same place that this church in Ephesus was of saying, we've, we've lost something. We've lost something. We can put the structures at the center. Sometimes I talk to churches that are struggling, and, uh, and every church goes through seasons where it's just hard, there's persecution of whatever kind. But sometimes we'll talk to churches that are s- struggling, and it feels like, man, our church is, our church is going to die. And, and churches die every day. Um, every day in the United States, nine churches will close their doors. It's on average. So today, I mean, nine churches would say, hey, this is our last worship gathering like this, and we'll hang a for sale sign up. Um, some of that has to do with nothing that's in our control. You know, it's just things that are happening outside of us, but some of it is in our control. Um, but sometimes I'll talk to churches that are struggling, and I'll say, like, so what are you doing? Like, what, what is God up to? How are, you, how are you working at this? And most of the time, churches, what they end up saying is, well, we're restructuring. Like, we're tinkering with the internal mechanics of the church. And we just, like, if we can just get aligned a little bit more smoothly, then things will start to break open again. Do you know denominations can do this? We sense, hey, we're losing churches. Things are, oh, things are sort of moving faster than we can control them. And so denominations can just spend their time tinkering with structures and trying to rearrange. And it's really tempting. Why? Because structures we can hold on to. I, we, can, we can grab them, and we can do something with them. 
we could restructure the church in about an hour this afternoon and never have to leave this room. All we need is a flip chart and some, you know, whatever, some, some schematics. We could just, well, let's restructure this thing. That's, that's easy work. You know what the hard work is? It's prayer. I mean, the hard work of saying, God, where are you at work? God, how is your spirit moving that is beyond our ability to control? God, how do you want to just use me? God, what are you asking of me? How are we as a church loving our community and and living out the kingdom of God here? Now, that is the hard work. And it's a work we often avoid as a church. And here's the thing, like, we will never restructure ourselves into spiritual vitality. It just won't happen. Um, And so this, this warning to the church in Ephesians, I think, is a warning to the church everywhere that unless we, we, we live in this place of openness to the Spirit of God, which is our source of life, the life will be removed from us. And so there is this, this sense of warning, of a calling to live in the moment, the here and now. God, what are you doing? Um, there's also, I think, we get a, a bit of a a key to what was happening in the church in Ephesus in verse 3. In verse 3 it says, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. Um, like, that, there are other people who wrote about the church in Ephesus and they said, like, no false teacher could get a hearing in Ephesus because people were so, like, they were on it, guarding theology, like the right beliefs. Like, they, they were, were not sort of going to entertain somebody who was teaching something that was outside the lines. And this is good. Jesus affirms them for this. You've tested those who claim to be apostles. An apostle was somebody who had leadership in the church sent by God, but they are not. But I think there's also a warning in this, that we can become such harsh defenders of the truth that we can miss the truth that the center of everything is love. It's, it's love for God, love for each other, and even love for our enemies and those who disagree with us. Um, there are three, three words I want to introduce you to. Um, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthocardia. Uh, maybe you've heard some of these before. Orthodoxy is right beliefs. Like as a church, we are an orthodox church. We hold to the beliefs that the church has always held of who Jesus is, and, and the Spirit, and God the Father, the nature of the Trinity, and the Scriptures, and salvation, and life in the world to come. We, a couple years ago, we were, it was last year, we did this series called We Believe, just looking at the orthodox beliefs of the church. And so orthodoxy is these right beliefs. And it seems like the church in Ephesus had become like guardians of right beliefs, like holding to orthodoxy, which is good. Jesus affirms them for this. But we can hold to right beliefs at the expense of orthopraxy. That's saying, how do these beliefs actually change my life? Because um, sometimes we can live with the idea that St. Peter's going to hand us a theology test when we get to heaven. It's like, okay, if you can pass this, if you can tell me like the nature of the Trinity and all that, then you'll get into heaven. And that's how we, if we just get our theology right, then everything will take care of itself. But our right beliefs don't necessarily translate into right living. That we can actually believe all the right things and live pretty crummy lives. And the third one is orthocardia, having a right 
heart, having this heart that is open and loving and responsive to God. And a church has to hold all of these together, has to say, we want to believe the right things, we want to live the right way, and we want to be people of love and grace and mercy in our community. So maybe one of the things that was happening in Ephesus was that they were, they were guarding the truth of their beliefs to the extent of the other two. Um, it's, it's 2017. You guys, um, everybody aware of that? 2017? Uh, 500 years ago, something really significant happened. Changed the world. Changed your life, my life, in ways that we don't even fully understand. It's called the Great Reformation. 1,500 years ago, uh, on August 31st, 1517... Was uh, So this August 31st, we'll celebrate the 500th anniversary of a German monk named Martin Luther who nailed 95 grievances to the door of the Wittenberg University. How many of you have heard of Martin Luther? So he's a German monk who became a priest, who became a teacher of theology. And Martin Luther, he starts reading the Bible, and he, he's in the Catholic Church. There's only one church at the time, right? It's not like you have Catholics and Mennonites and all this. It's one church, Catholic Church. Martin Luther starts to read the Bible, and he says, hold on a second, like some of our beliefs, they don't line up with the scriptures. And so um, his, his particular beef was with Pope Leo X, um, picture of Pope Leo. And um, one of the things Pope Leo had started to do, at this point, Catholic salvation, the way you, they understood salvation was that at the end of your life, you basically have a scale. You have the amount of good things you have done and the amount of bad things you have done. And whichever way the scale tilts um, will determine your eternal destiny. So if you have more good things than bad things, you go to heaven. If you have more bad things than good things, you go to purgatory. Now, purgatory, in, in this Catholic understanding, was the place where all of your bad things got atoned for. It was a place of torture and torment and fire. And these, these sins got burnt out of you to make you ready for heaven. So... Um, what Pope Leo did is he said, okay, so here's the thing. You're going to spend time in purgatory because most of us, if we're really honest, we know that our good deeds don't outweigh our bad deeds. Um, so you can buy these things called indulgences and you can pay for your time in purgatory to speed it up a bit. Fast forward on your time in purgatory, um, which is a pretty sweet deal. And it's also a really good fundraising initiative because everybody knows what they did on the weekend. So you throw a hundred bucks in the offering plate and hey, God will sort of look the other way. Um, what they also started to do was they got really creative is they said your people in your family or loved ones who have died, you can buy indulgences for them. So Grandma Bessie, who is in purgatory right now, you can actually limit her time there so she can go to heaven sooner. So uh, this guy named Johann Tetzel was like chief fundraiser. And he went around with his little wagon and he had these real catchy phrases. He says, the, the moment the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Right? It's pretty catchy, right? They raised a lot of money this way. And it made Martin Luther furious because they were manipulating people, Right? Not all that different from faith healers on TV who say, hey, when you send your money, then God will heal you, right? I mean, there's the same, same sort of deal. There's manipulation happening there. And Martin Luther was furious about it, saying our orthodoxy is at stake. Our beliefs are wrong. But here's the thing. Martin Luther was, I, in my opinion, very right on the beliefs, but he missed something when it came to right-heartedness and right-living. 
So here are a couple of quotes from Martin Luther directed at Pope Leo and, and popes after him. I despise your whorish impudence. You wear a pair of cobweb trousers like a man who, being naked, put on a new to hide his shame. If Martin Luther had Twitter, like, he would be a loose cannon, right? Um, here, here's another one directed at the Pope. You are a toad eater and a fawner. So the dude threw some serious shade. Um, he, he had this, this, this other guy named Ulrich Zwingli, who was, a, he was also a reformer. And while Martin Luther was in Germany doing his thing, Zwingli was in Geneva, Switzerland doing his thing. And, uh, and the two like, didn't agree on some stuff. So they get together. They say, can we like, hash this out? Can we figure this out? So they get together. They have this meeting. And they realize, like, we agree on a lot of stuff. 14 points of theological agreement. Yes, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree. Point number 15, what's the nature of communion? Disagreement. Uh, Martin Luther says, okay, the, the bread and the wine that we take, Jesus is actually in the elements. Jesus is like he's in, with, and under the elements. And so to take communion is to take Christ into yourself. And Ulrich Wingley says, actually, I don't see it that way. I think it's a memorial. It's like a remembrance of what Christ has done for us, and we celebrate it every time we take communion. And 14 points of a disagreement are torn up, shredded, and Martin Luther looks at Ulrich Zwingli and says, I would rather drink blood with the Pope than wine with the Swiss. They turn their backs on each other and walk away. And this is one of the reasons why today we have 43,000 denominations in the world. It's because we, we just, wow, we can't agree on this thing, and so we just, whew, we part ways. And here's what Martin Luther says of Ulrich Zwingli after he died several years later in, in battle. He got what he deserved. His death proved I'm right and he's wrong. <laughs> so, what do we learn? Uh, we learn that we can have all the right beliefs and we can miss something, Right? When you see that, like, we, we, have to, we have to guard our beliefs. We have to guard orthodoxy to say, yes, we are going to stick with what the church has always affirmed. And yet we want to do it and hold our beliefs in such a way that we stay loving and kind and open. Like, this is, this is what a church always has to do. It's possible to win the argument and lose the relationship. Right? I mean, but I'm Right? Well, how, how far are you willing to go in your marriage, in your relationship, to prove that you're right? Because you can be right and act really wrongly. And so this is, this is um, something I think we learn from church history and, and maybe from this letter to the Ephesians. See, Jesus calls to the church and he says, Repent, consider how far you've fallen. Don't just look back at the good old days, but turn around and actually experience me like I was then. And if you do not repent, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. And again, he kind of gives this warning. He says, if you, if you don't look like Jesus, if you don't look like me in the world, then you can't be called the church anymore. Um, that we lose the right to be called the people of Jesus when we no longer look and act like Jesus and love like Jesus. And so do you realize there's no church in Ephesus today? So 2,000 years later, in this vibrant, buzzing place where God showed up in so many amazing ways, there are, there are a couple thousand Christians in the nation of Turkey 
on the whole. And in the city of Ephesus, if there's a church, it's underground. It's in hiding. There's no visible church. And so people visit ruins of the church to see what God has done in the past. And for me, this kind of puts this like, this kind of holy sort of angst in my gut to say like, that could happen here too, right? I mean, if you would have told people in Ephesus that, hey, 2,000 years from now, there will be no church left in the city, they'd have been like, no, there's no way that's going to happen. But the, the same thing could be true here. And unless we stay open, unless we stay responsive, unless we keep our hearts open to God and to others, Jesus says the spirit of Jesus, it can either fan into flame or it can extinguish the life of the church. So in the end, Jesus, uh, he gives a promise to the church in Ephesus. He says, to those who, who are victorious, to those who remain faithful to me, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Jesus says, here's my project. My project, the kingdom of God, that's been going since the very beginning, is to restore everything that's been broken. To reconnect people to their creator. To, to allow people to live the way they were always meant to live life with God, and to those who overcome, they will taste life with God. They will eat of this tree of life, of wholeness, of peace, of fulfillment, of joy. They will eat it, and they will eat it in the paradise of God for all eternity, this gift of eternal life that is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And so we have this promise in front of us that keeps us moving forward, that this is the project that we are caught up in as a church, as a people of God. God, we ask that you would just speak through your spirit to us, that your spirit would move and that we would be responsive. Uh, We pray you do some crazy stuff that we can't control, that we know this was not planned by journey. This was not organized in a board meeting. This was not prescripted or prescribed. God, this was out of our control and out of our timing, and it just caused us to to just sort of do do the hard work of listening to you. God, for those of us um, whose hearts have maybe grown cold toward you, who we look back at the past and we say, man, those were the good old days. We hear the call to repent. And so, God, we want to. We want to not just look backward, but we want to actually turn. Turn back to you. And we trust, God, that as we do, as we confess, as we repent, that you flood us with your life. That you hold out the tree of life to us. God, I pray for for us as a church, Journey, the church of Reno County, of Kansas, across denominations, across the spectrum, that we'd be a people who are sensitive to what your spirit is up to, that we would stay in the moment with you, alive and fresh and full of love. God, we pray this in Jesus' name.